Welcome back. My name is Jonathan Burke, and I'm the AP Giannini Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, Finance Professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Before we get into the specifics of this episode, we just want to take a few moments to thank you all for listening and providing such positive feedback to the first few episodes. It's really gratifying and inspiring to see so many listens. Yes, Jonathan, I think the number of people that have come up to us to tell us how much they've enjoyed the show has really caught us by surprise. It has. Okay, Jules, let's dive into the new episode. So in the last episode, we have discussed stock picking and whether as a regular investor, you should expect to make money by doing this. And the conclusion that we came to was that it's only possible to make money if you're able to arrive at the party early. That is, you need to know something about the stock before other investors do so that you can capitalize on that competitive advantage of knowing more. If you do not come prepared and thus do not arrive at the party early, it's like walking onto the football field unprepared facing Tom Brady uh, on the other team. So that raises the question, if as an individual investor you cannot make money by picking stocks, could you simply hire Tom Brady to play football for you? Meaning, can you hire a professional investment manager who does the job for you, and should you expect to make money that way? And as we're going to find out today, expecting to make money that way is yet another example of an all-else-equal mistake. And so let's find out why that is. Okay, Jules, this is actually a much broader problem. It's a problem of... How do you hire somebody? So let's think about a concrete example. So let's say I want to hire a surgeon because I need a complicated operation. Question, would you hire a surgeon with the best record? That is, the surgeon who has the least number of operations that have gone wrong. Most likely you wouldn't, Jules. And the reason is the best surgeons often do the most complicated operations. So the best surgeons are going to have worse records than the, an average surgeon who is just doing simple operations. Yes, indeed, Jonathan. I think you can make the same point about CEOs, right? The most skilled CEOs are the people that you want to have do the toughest jobs. And so when we are evaluating skill and we want to figure out who the best CEO is, we want to take into account this thing of doing tougher jobs. And in many ways, that is what the all else equal concerns are about. It is that if they pick the tougher operations, the surgeons or the CEOs pick the tougher jobs, we want the, our evaluation of the skill of these professionals to reflect that. Yeah, I mean, so if you've got two CEOs in a highly competitive industry, both doing average, they could be very skilled because if they were not, if you've got one CEO and the other CEO isn't as skilled, they wouldn't be doing average, you'd be doing much worse. The fact that they are both competing with each other and being average, it just reflects the fact that they two highly skilled people are competing with each other. Now let's bring up another all else equal concern, which is when you want to hire these CEOs, what do you need to pay them? So let's bring that back to Tom Brady. All else equal, you would rather have Tom Brady play football for you. But the question is, what do you need to pay Tom Brady to do that? And so is there any surplus left for you after you've paid him his salary? If he's so expensive to play football for you that there's nothing left for you, then it may actually not be such a great idea to ask him to play football for you. Yeah, you could buy, you could hire the second best quarterback. 
if the salary the second base quarter is substantially below Tom Brady's salary, you may be better off with the second best quarterback, not the first best quarterback. It's back to the same thing we spoke about in the last episode, the price you pay. Absolutely. So now let's bring this back to money management. Okay. Let's talk about money managers. The question is, if you want to hire somebody to manage your money, is the best thing to do to look at the past record of the money managers and hire the money manager with the best record? It might seem like that's the obvious thing to do. But the funny thing is, Jules, if you look at the data, what you find is that past record is not a good predictor of future record. In other words, if I look at a money manager and I look at his record over the last year, the last five years, and I rack money managers, and I take the money manager with the very best record, and I then look over the next five years how that money manager performs, what you find is he does no better than average money managers. So let's be precise about what we mean with record, right? So the record is the return that that manager has delivered to his or hers investors. Exactly. And, you know, it's even worse than that, Jules, because you could say, well, look, what if I don't hire a money manager? So what does it mean not to hire a money manager? It means just stick your money in all stocks proportionately. So you're not picking stocks. You're just putting your money in all the stocks you can invest in, what we call the entire markets. And so Vanguard, for example, has made their entire business model to offer those types of funds. And they charge almost nothing for it. So it's very cheap. You could go to Vanguard and invest in one of their funds that just invests in all stocks. There's no stock picking at all. And you could ask the question, how does your investment in one of Vanguard's funds compare to your investment in an average mutual fund manager? And what we find indeed is that that average is pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. The managers that are being paid to pick stocks, the returns to investors of those managers is no different to the return they would earn in a Vanguard fund than invest in all stocks. On average, absolutely. So, so let's take that back to the example about the CEOs and the surgeons. We need to ask ourselves the question, is it true in money management as well that there are easier and harder jobs to do? And as it turns out, there's a straightforward reason for why money management gets harder, and that is if you have to manage a larger fund. Managing a a larger amount of money is tougher than managing a smaller amount of money. So let's think about why that is. The reason why that is, is that as an investment manager, you have investment ideas, you implement your best ideas first, and gradually as you get more money, you start to revert to worse and worse ideas that deliver lower and lower returns. This is what we call in the industry decreasing returns to scale. So let's think about how that might work in the economy. So we have a bunch of money managers out there, okay? And let's imagine, make a very simple assumption. I'm not saying it's realistic, but let's just make it for the moment. Assume we know who the best money managers are. So for every money manager out there, we know exactly how skilled they are. And now we're all deciding who who we want to invest with. Well, Well, nobody wants to invest with a bad manager. So everybody's going to invest with the best manager. And so all the money's going to flow to that manager. He's quickly going to run out of good ideas. And so his return is going to drop until it drops to the second best manager. And then we're going to give it to the first and second best manager. And then when you give the money to the first and the second manager, the gradually the return will drop to that of the third manager and the process continues that way. So then the question is, when does this process stop? 
Well, when all the money that we've collectively given to all these managers, their returns has dropped to the level of the returns of the Vanguard Index Fund. The investment strategy where you simply invest in all stocks proportionately to their market capitalization. Yeah, Jules, why pay the money manager? You can, you can always invest all your money in all stocks by buying a Vanguard Index Fund. And so if the money manager can't beat that return, you're not, you're not going to invest with the manager. So when the money manager return drops to that return, then everybody's indifferent. They don't care. They either give it to the money manager or they give it to a Vanguard Index Fund. So Jonathan, let's get back a little bit to the assumption that you mentioned earlier. You said it was somewhat unrealistic to assume that we know the skill of all the managers so that we can first start giving the money to the best manager. What if I don't know for sure what the skill of all these managers is? How, how am I going to go about the problem in that, in that case? Yeah, I wouldn't say somewhat realistic. I would say totally unrealistic. <laughs> so yes, that's not a very realistic assumption. But on the other hand, we have some idea of who the good managers are. In, in economic speak, we would say we have an expectation of who the good managers are, right? So instead of us now knowing who good managers are, we repeat the same thought experiment, but this time we do it in expectation. Everybody has an expectation of who they think the best manager is, and we give that manager money. As the size of his fund grows, it, it drops to the return of the manager that in expectation we think is the second best manager, and the same equilibrium happens until the return of all the managers drops to the expected return of the Vanguard Fund, because of course we don't even know what the return of the Vanguard Fund will be because there's a lot of uncertainty for stocks. It's all done in expectations. But if we do it in expectations, there's also going to be learning in this problem, meaning that over time, I can change that expectation, right? What if I get good news about the manager or bad news about the manager? What if they outperform or underperform? What happens to that expectation? That's the question. Yes, there's learning. And obviously, if the manager does well, that's not bad news. So obviously, if I see a manager do well, I'm going to update my expectation. I'm going to think to myself, okay, the manager's better than I thought he was. And I'm not the only one doing that. Everybody gets to observe the returns. So all investors are going to say, oh my God, that manager's better than we thought he was, and they will want to invest money. And so that investing money will lead to inflows into the fund. The investors will give the outperforming managers more money and will give the underperforming managers, they will withdraw their money. And this is what we call in the industry, the flow performance relationship. But just be clear about that. When the money flows in, the size of the fund grows. We've already established there's decreasing returns to scale. So the return drops. And what does it drop to? It drops to the Vanguard expected return. Similarly, for the bad managers, money flows out. So they, their returns go up. And they, again, in expectation, we don't know what their returns will be, but we expect their returns to be about the same as the Vanguard index fund. And there are two points worth noting about this flow performance relationship. The first one is, it is the manifestation of investors competing with each other. The fact that they all want to be with the best manager will result in that flow. The second thing to note about it is, is this just the theory we're talking about? Or is this actually what we see in the data? Do we see the flow performance relationship play out in the data? And, and Jules, the key word here is the performance on the flow performance relation, because in the data, there is this incredibly robust result, which is that there is no predictability in future performance. That's what we said at the outset of this episode. 
the best managers in the past, based on their past record, do no better than average managers. On the other hand, they attract flows. In fact, Jules, this is what I think of as one of, a perfect example of how easy it is to make an all else equal mistake. Even professors who are specialists in the subject made this mistake because what they used to say was that the flow performance relation was an example of investors making mistakes. They said investors would look at past performance, invest based on past performance, even though investors knew that there was no predictability. And quite the opposite is true, of course. The fact that the flow performance relationship happens makes it such that the performance is no longer predictable. Because after the manager has done well, the size of the fund increases, and due to the decreasing returns to scale, the returns going forward will be lower. Yeah, so to be specific about the all else equal mistake, all else equal, you would rather have a manager with better performance than worse performance. And you would expect that performance to continue if the, ma- if the manager is skilled, but all else isn't equal. When the manager does well, everybody observes the performance, funds flow in, and you don't get the performance going, going forward. So once again, the competitive response of your environment is what makes the all else equal thinking fail. All right, so there's still one last missing piece to this equation, Jonathan, and that is when we talked about Tom Brady and hiring Tom Brady to play football for us, we said it depends on how much you need to pay him to play football for you, whether or not you think this is a good idea. All else equal, give meaning for a low salary, if I could have all quarterbacks pay the same low salary, then obviously I would rather have Tom Brady do it. But what if everybody's paid according to their skill level? If I need to pay Tom Brady a lot, is there anything left for me after I have to have paid him this salary? Jules, it's exactly the same for money managers. Why? Because money managers are paid a fixed fraction of the size of the fund. And the largest funds are managed by the best money managers. So when the the best money managers have the most skill, notice where that skill goes. It goes to their salary. Because after their salary, they earn the same return as all other money managers. On average. On average. Obviously, on average. Jonathan, I think this is a good time for us to introduce our guest. Our guest today is Pete Brieger, who is the CEO of Fortress Investment Group, which has approximately $55 billion of assets under management, representing 1,800 institutional clients. Pete himself is specialized in distressed debt investing, and it's probably a good idea to spend some time describing what distressed debt investing really is. Yeah, so what is distressed debt investing? So holding all else equal, investing in the debt of a company that's either bankrupt or close to bankruptcy seems like a terrible idea. Absolutely. But all else is not equal. Pete has made an enormous amount of money buying the debt of companies that are in financial distress. Now, you might ask, how do you make a lot of money doing that? And by this point, we're guessing a lot of you know the answer. He got a very low price. So, Pete, welcome to our show. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jules. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Pete, you know, when you came to my class and you spoke to my students, you introduced yourself as a garbage collector. And during the class, one of my students questioned an example of what you meant by garbage, a specific investment you made 
that from the outside seemed like a horrible idea. And you responded by saying, but you know what price I paid for it? I don't want to mention the name of the investment, but if you could talk about it, I'd really appreciate it. I'll mention the name of the investment and then you'll realize why I don't want to talk about it right now. But the investment was buying the intellectual property out of um, the Theranos estate. And since um, um, she is undergoing trial right now, I think I'd best um, be served by keeping my mouth shut um, and, and not referring to that specific example. But, you know, in anything, the entry price is is important. Um, you know, I think in that case in particular, um, what most people would have assumed is that everything associated with that situation uh, might have been untrue or might have been a fraud. But it's very um, difficult to fake out the U.S. Patent and Trade um, um, Association. So, so we felt good about the assets that we were buying there. And I think that that was the question that, that the student in your class was asking is how could you actually go into that situation and and ever make a, a guess on what something's worth if, if you're sitting there with a Department of Justice investigation that is current. But a lot of what we do in our business is go into situations where uh, the perception of risk is, is really high and we can do our homework and uh, get ourselves comfortable that the risk that we're taking in a particular investment is not as high. Well, one of the famous examples is Madoff, right? You were a very early investor in Madoff. Um, and again, you understood that there was a lot of money that could be uh, recouped in that situation when others didn't. Yes, I mean, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, uh, Jonathan. We were the biggest player in the Madoff bankruptcy fraud liquidation. If you just listen to the syntax of that sentence, it sounds like something that you shouldn't want to touch. Um, but that's the reason why, uh, you know, when we started buying claims in the in the Madoff bankruptcy, um, they were in the sort of 20 percent of par range. Maybe some of the first claims traded at lower uh, levels than that. And right now, those Madoff bankruptcy fraud liquidation claims are trading in the 80s as a function of, you know, the work that the trustee has done to bring people who were responsible, you know, or, or, or co-responsible to that, to sort of the table to make sure that they funded into the, the liquidation pot. And so we thought that that would happen and we were an aggressive buyer early and, and we were a, a buyer as more information came out and more people became uh, um, uh, liable to, to pay into the pot. So that's another example of the second issue, which is the competition of other investors. Early on, you didn't face that much competition, but then as other people began to realize the strategy, it became more difficult to make money in this strategy, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, I'm 57 years old and I've been doing this now for you know 35 years. And I would say the relative competition in the industry has increased a hundredfold from when I first started doing this. And so the competitive edge that you get in a situation like Madoff may be expressed in the context of days. There, there, there are probably 2,000 experienced credit funds in the world right now that all could potentially have been investing in the Madoff bankruptcy shortly after that was announced. And 35 years ago, there might have been two or three. 
who could have potentially been interested in, in purchasing those claims. And, and how does that competition affect the scale of Fortress? I mean, Fortress is one of the biggest companies in the space. How does the competition affect your ability to still continue to make uh, returns for your investors? Well, the maturity of the asset class has uh, driven down the margin for error, for sure. These investments today um, are riskier than they were 10 years ago, uh, and certainly riskier than they were 20 years ago. Um, there's a lot more capital chasing these investments. It's become, in most of the endowments in the world, um, a discrete asset class where people allocate to, and that has, you know, sort of driven down the, the, the returns and, and, and made the risk-adjusted returns um, uh, less interesting. I'd say that's probably true for, you know, every investment uh, uh, asset class over, over that period of time. But debt is a particularly um, competitive asset class. Um, you know, most people think that it provides stable um, returns and you have your downside protected. And so that they tend to have a higher tolerance for a higher percentage of their portfolio being invested in what it is that they think, you know, the risks that we're taking are. So do you think that there's situations where funds should just tell their investors that the fund size is capped or turn down additional inflows? You talked earlier about there's certain times when the market is offering large risk premium on many different things and there are more opportunities than at others. Can you imagine a situation where the number of opportunities is sufficiently small that funds should say to their investors, no, you should keep your money. Um, we're capping the fund size at this size. Absolutely. Um, you know, ours is a cyclical business. Um, and when investors don't perceive a lot of risk, um, <laughs> you generally get overfunded and the opportunity set uh, is dwindling. And so I think as a disciplined investor, you want to be investing at a much slower pace um, when the opportunity set is not thematic, it's idiosyncratic. Uh, and you should be prepared to um, give capital back or delay raising funds until you think that the opportunity set is there. A perfect example of that, Jules, was, you know, sort of as we got into um, uh, the bad news associated with the, the, the pandemic, the markets uh, fell out of bed and, um, you know, we and, and many others went out to raise capital based upon our prior reputations for having seized these opportunities to make money. And we invested a lot of capital, but that, that opportunity quickly went away. Yep. And so then you have to really slow down your uh, investment process. And, you know, it's a little bit different in the context of a hedge fund, which is constantly invested. It's evergreen capital versus, you know, sort of a private equity structure where you have more uh, ability to just stop investing. You know, at Fortress, we don't charge uh, fees on uncalled capital. So there is a theoretical cost to uh, holding somebody's capital, but it's not, you know, sort of the actual cost of, of, of um, uh, fees on uncalled capital. Let me uh, change the subject to investors and performance. You know, if you look in the mutual fund space, what you'll see is that investors are quite sensitive to performance, that investors 
when they perceive the managers are not doing well, they withdraw their capital. And when they perceive the managers are doing well, they, they invest capital. And it's a pretty strong disciplining device. What about a place like Fortress, where uh, often your investments are quite opaque and often you need to make investments at times when not many people are investing? Well, that's a great question. We, we, investors really care about performance, uh, especially over the long term, because um, you, know, you can have signals uh, with respect to <clears throat> performance in my asset class where if you're making your best investments, sometimes it looks like you're losing a little bit of money at the outset as, as prices tend to go down. Um, but I think over the medium to long term, you better have good performance or you're not going to be managing other people's money. Um, with respect to the nature of complex investments, you really have to articulate to your investors what it is that you're doing, the risks that you're taking. Uh, and so we have, um, you know, at least twice a year um, conferences with our investors where we take them through every investment that uh, they're invested in, in a very detailed way. And for those that really want to understand the risks, the upside and the downside, they have the ability to do that. And they can pretty much come in any day to Fortress, as long as they've signed a very binding confidentiality letter that they're not going to sort of trade against us with this information um, to really understand uh, the risk that they're taking. And then we write detailed monthly letters, et cetera, about, about what we're doing. Well, Pete, thanks a lot. This was just such a great interview. I mean, we learned so much about a part of the industry that I, even many uh, academics in finance aren't that particularly uh, familiar with. And so, you, so there were a couple of trends that I think were very interesting for us to think about more. I think the most important one was that this space also has become so much more competitive over time. Uh, as you described, that in the beginning, there were high returns to be earned, and now it's so much more competitive than uh, when you started. And I think the other thing that, that was so nicely illustrated with everything you told us about is that you know, good investments and good companies are really not the same thing. I mean, who, who would think that an investment in distressed company is a good company, right? And so you can make a lot of money in with that investment if you can get it in a low enough price. So there were just so many good insights that relate to the general theme of the podcast here. Thanks again for being with us today. It was wonderful. I completely agree, Jules. This was really interesting. Thank you so much, Pete. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a joint venture of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and is produced by Podium Podcast Co. 